Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. David Hockney is among the most famous and successful living artists. Growing up in northern England was not the inspiration for his best-known works. Southern California became Hockney's muse and his home. In turn, his sunny depictions of Los Angeles inspired a novel by the French author Catherine Cousset. Today, we'll hear about her fictional life of David Hockney. First, the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois is the debut novel by the acclaimed poet and essayist Honoré Fanon Jeffers. The book explores the history of an African-American family in the American South from the time before the American Civil War and slavery through the civil rights movement to the present. The author joins me now via Zoom. Honoré, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. This is an expansive work, and I wondered what it was like for you to move from shorter forms of literature, poetry and essay, to writing an epic novel. Well, uh, Lois, it was real hard. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine, given the length of even an epic poem yes. and an 800-page novel. Mm-hmm. Well, poetry, it's, it's like prayer for me. Mm. So with a book of poetry, what you do is you move from poem to poem to poem. And then after maybe halfway through, or I'll say this is the way I write, then a theme will become apparent to me. And then I begin to write toward that theme. Then I let the book sit and then I revise it. But there's never a moment where I feel uh, stressed or anxious when I'm writing poetry. Fiction, on the other hand, as the late great novelist Paul Marshall uh, once said to me, in order to write a novel, you have to have a certain cussedness. 
you can write a poem and let it be and then maybe come back a couple of weeks later until you know things start to coalesce. With a novel, when you do that, the feeling is gone, at least it is for me. So you have to continue to write regularly, maybe not every day, but certainly every other day. If you don't, you lose the thread and um, you can get very frustrated. And so imagine doing that for nine years. I can only imagine, though, the fact that you include a detailed family tree at the outset of this book tells us something about the intricacies of the stories. I remember once speaking with Rita Dove, and she said, because she began as a fiction writer, and I asked why she came over to poetry. And she said, well, she still loves fiction, but what she especially loves about poetry is the density of language. And hearing you talk about prayer reminded me of her comment because of how much meaning is contained within a relatively short space of time. Yes. The thing about fiction is even when you're attempting to only write for yourself, my poems are always for me. I hope that other people enjoy them, but ultimately I'm my greatest reader. If I don't love it, it doesn't matter. But with fiction, at some point, you do have to let in your audience. You have to tell a story. You have to pull the reader in. And you definitely cannot leave the reader hanging in an 800-page novel. You have to make sure that your narrative is taught and that it is, you know, pulling the reader along. One thing that my literary agent tells me not to think of it as cheating, because after all, you know, all of it is my work. But I do feel like I was able to cheat a little bit as a poet, because in the songs, they are very much like long prose poems. And so the density that you've spoken of, the lyricism that you've spoken of, this was the way that I prayed through particular moments of the book, of the love songs of W.B. Du Bois to arrive at more traditional narrative. So we encounter the songs, these love songs, as you divide the book into sections prefaced with excerpts from Du Bois's writings. I, I wondered how you narrowed it down, being such an admirer of his work. Well, one thing about W.B. Du Bois is that he loved Southern Black people. He particularly loved Georgians. He came to the Deep South on two separate occasions teaching at Atlanta University. And at that time, to be an African-American um, living in the Deep South was dangerous. He had actually survived the 1906 Atlanta uh, race riot in which one of his friends was murdered by a white gang. And so I've always been fascinated by him, by his genius. He is not simply 
the greatest African-American intellectual of the 19th and the 20th centuries. I would say bar none, he is the greatest American intellectual. And so when I began to ponder his work on African-American Southerners, I began to see patterns of how his words applied to many of the events that my characters were going through. For example, moving from the South to the North, attending a historically Black college, the resistance toward sexism and the throwing off of oppression of Black women. There were so many moments. And then, of course, there's that quote from his germinal essay of the Sorrow Songs, where he speaks about the traditional spirituals. And that's the metaphor of the book. So for every moment in Ailey Pearl Garfield's life, my protagonist, there is a passage from a work by W.B. Du Bois. Yes. Your love songs to him. You mentioned Georgia. I know that your mom was from Eatonton. Mm-hmm. And she attended Spelman. Yes. Would you talk about setting the contemporary part of this novel in Georgia? Well, I guess it's all set in Georgia. It is. Well, my mother's people have lived in central Georgia going all the way back to the 19th century as much as I could research. There is a moment when you are a Black person who is descendant from those people who survived the horrific Middle Passage where you you hit a wall. Unless you're a very rare person, there, there isn't much documentation. But I found her great-grandmother, Mandy, on the 1870 census, and Mandy's biracial son, Jinx, on the 1870 census. And so when I was a little girl, my mother would drive me and my two sisters down to Eatonton, and we would spend the whole summer with her mother, Grandma Florence. But Grandma, unlike Ailey's grandmother, she didn't live in the country She was very proud of living in town, okay? Uh, So her children, her grown children had done what we call, they set her down, meaning she didn't have to work. And they built her a house in the African-American portion of town across the railroad tracks. Many small Southern towns are still segregated by those railroad tracks. But I didn't know much about all of that, about Jim Crow and segregation at first. When I was a little girl, I just loved Eatonton. There was something very idyllic about it, being in the house with grandma and many cousins of mine. And um, my mother's brothers and sisters would come through. Nobody ever called back then. So people would just come and park on the side of the street and walk up the porch or they come to the back door and they holler through the screen, you know, and there were always people and there was a lot of warmth and there was always food. You know, grandma always had a spread out for people because people would just come through, you know, during the summers. 
you know, as I move into solidified memory, I guess I was 11, 12, 13, where I, you know, I begin to remember moments where they would talk about history. And so when I first encountered African-American history, it was not in the pages of a book. It was through stories that my grandmother and her brothers and sisters would tell or her grown children would tell. And so it stuck with me. Yeah, we are our stories. Yes, we are. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the author Honoré Fanon Jeffers about her debut novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. You've said that you are here on Earth to tend ancestral altars. How is that further revealed in this novel? Well, I think that there are some of us mostly African-Americans who are meant to tell African-American history. But we do have some wonderful white scholars as well who tend to these altars. And when I mean tend to the altars, I mean that history is not a dry thing. It's not a dead thing. It's a living thing. And we become very emotionally attached to the people that we read about and we write about. And so that's what I wanted to do in Love Songs. I wanted to show that history was a living thing. There is um, a great Native American writer and poet, Deborah Miranda, who talks about my body is an archive. And so I wanted to show that. I wanted to show the body as an archive. I wanted to show the land as an archive. What does the land remember that is not documented? And what does the blood remember that is not documented? And we have Ailey, who is very resistant of tradition in many, many ways, but she comes to accept and to embrace that it is her responsibility to tend to this living archive that is African-American history. And also in the process, Afro-Indigenous yes. history, which is something yes. you have taken on as well. Yes, because again, so many of us African-American folks can't prove certain things about ourselves, but Eatonton is known, Eatonton, Madison, Milledgeville is known as an Afro-Indigenous enclave, that area, okay? The Trail of Tears came right through Milledgeville. And in my family, there, you know, was not just lore, but certainty that they would talk about this indigenous great-great-grandmother, my grandma Florence's um, great-great-grandmother. And I cannot prove this. And it's a grief for me. But one of the things that you find out is that if your people were not removed on the Trail of Tears, if they remained, and there were, there were people who remained, they are called out here, the people who stayed, if they were not removed on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma, they were not registered on the Dawes roll. And so all we have is these stories. And so one of the things that I, I, I started thinking about, um, how could I both be 
um, respectful to my Native American kin, as it were, and understand that so much has been taken from them. So they are very sensitive, as should they be, of just random people who have no, you know, kind of ancestral proof saying, you know, I'm Cherokee or I'm Creek or what have you. I wanted to be respectful of Native American colleagues, Native American who I think of as kin, um, although I can't prove that, but I also wanted to be respectful of those ancestors that my family remembers. And so I struggled with that a lot. And that's how I decided that the compromise that I was going to make is that every single one of my Native American uh, characters was going to be mixed race. And that way I would not be appropriating a particular aspect of the history because I had been told by Native American friends that it was my duty to tend to Native American altars as well as African altars. All of the ancestors. All of the ancestors. You know, even the European ancestors who weren't necessarily nice. Oh, (laughs) oh, we're going to get to him. He is evil. We'll we'll save him for a little later. (laughs) You mentioned Ailey. You have several protagonists in this book, but Ailey's character is most outstanding. What else can you tell us about her? Well, I wanted to have a heroine that dark brown-skinned African-American women like me, like my mother, could identify with. When you look at the book, 90% of the Black uh, women characters and the Black girl characters are dark brown skin. So when people think about Ailey, I want them to think about that and to understand that she and her mother are considered beautiful in their community. Maybe not in Nana Claire's community, Ailey's paternal grandmother, but in her maternal side of the family, this is what beauty looks like. I also wanted... Ailey to be chubby because I felt like that kind of body positivity is still something that's very new. Um, But again, when I was growing up in the 80s, when you went into working class Black communities, that was the um, preferred phenotype. A woman with, with some meat on her bones, they used to call those kind of women big boned when I was coming up. Is it also a description of big boned women as fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> big, big, I see you know your uh, your African American culture, Lois. Yes, be a big fine woman. Yeah, I think so you say fine. in or one of the characters says only a dog likes a bone. Only a dog likes a bone, and that is a well known folkloric saying. All right, I would hear that all the time when I was growing up, and so I wanted to show that. I wanted to show the tension of class that Ailey experiences. She's got her working class uh, family in Chickasetta, and then she has the upper middle class black bourgeoisie socioeconomic setting with her grandmother, Nana Claire. And so I wanted to show that. Um, I wanted to show Ailey as, again, someone who was very resistant toward sexism, toward tradition, 
I wanted her to be really smart, uh, but I also wanted her to be deeply flawed. Every character in the book, the good characters, the nice characters are flawed. And of course the villains are flawed. I wanted everyone to be flawed because every human being is flawed. And then in that way with Ailey showing her as flawed, I wanted to be very clear that when I was writing these characters to make a comment on our common humanity, each of us has a path within that can go left or can go right. We have to choose which direction we're going. Author and poet, Honoré Fanon Jeffers. We'll return to more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Honoré Fanon Jeffers about her debut novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Here, Jeffers discusses my favorite character from the novel, Uncle Root. I loved Uncle Root. I How can Uncle you Ruth. not? I wanted, there, there are traumas that, that Ailey goes through and I wanted her to have a completely safe space in someone, in a black man in particular, you know, that no matter what she experienced from childhood to adulthood, all those difficulties, that there was someone that she could lean on. As my editor, Aaron Wicks, I always say, Aaron Wicks is a genius and the world needs to know, used to say about Uncle Root, he just gets Ailey. He gets her. He also gets other young folks. He's accepting of them because he remembers when he was young. And one of the things, again, Uncle Root is a mirror of Ailey. He's a very old man, but he's a mirror because he is balancing this duality as well. Not just class uh, as Ailey is balancing, but Uncle Root is also biracial. So he is a white appearing man who has chosen to remain in the Black community of Chickasetta, who chose as a young man to marry a dark brown skinned woman. So there would be no mistaking what his race was. He tends the community. He tends the altars as well. And, you know, this is not a romance in a typical sense. You know, there, there's, you know, nothing about, will Ailey get married? Will, you know, why can't Ailey keep a man and any of that, right? The romance, I would say if there's a romance, it's a platonic romance 
between Avi and Uncle Bruce. Yes. They have a true love story. The beautiful love for each other and each other's roles. And it's no accident that Uncle Root is himself an intellectual, yes. an academic. Mm -hmm. We encounter research scholars, colleges, and universities in the love songs. Why do these occupy pride of place in your novel? Well, there is a quote by Du Bois around the middle of the book. And it's a quote from the Talented Ten. You misjudge us because you do not know us. Other than, you know, a couple of books, most notably Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, there's another one, uh, Quicksand by Nella Larson. There are not very many depictions of lengthy depictions of uh, historically Black colleges and universities in American literature. These are uh, institutions that are hidden in plain sight. They're probably for most non-Black people, it wasn't until they heard about Vice President Kamala Harris having attended Howard University and having pledged uh, one of the divine nine Greek letter organizations, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, that people began to understand that there were these middle-class Black communities, right? I think that people were familiar with hearing, and this is not a pejorative term because, you know, I, I was once poor when my parents separated and we lived in the so-called hood, okay? So I'm not diminishing uh, low income or, or what is called sometimes derisively urban neighborhoods. But very few non-Black people knew about these elite institutions that had been founded by freed in formerly enslaved African-Americans after the Civil War. I needed people to see us in moments that were once secret. I wanted to pull back that curtain. I wanted to show that there were brilliant Black people, intellectual Black people, because the working class Black people are brilliant as well, but intellectually, formally, educated Black people when there were no white people in the room. I think that very few people who are not Black can understand that. We are brilliant in our own right. We are educated in our own right. We read books in our own right. And I wanted people to see that. And that is why I portray that milieu. And there were some early readers who were like, why do we even need this? Why, why do we need this section on this, this, this section on her in college. Let's move on. And I was like, we need it because nobody knows about it except us. Well, that is an advantage we have living in Atlanta. Yes. I, I mean the collective we. Yes. Because of the Atlanta University School. That's right. Morehouse, Spelman, Clark Atlanta University, Morris Brown. Uh, my mother is not only a graduate of Spelman College, she received her doctorate when it was Atlanta University before it merged with Clark College. My two sisters went to Spelman College. My father taught at Morehouse College. So you know it well. Yes. That's why 
earlier in the book, I was thinking, okay, maybe Rutledge is Spelman, but then no, Rutledge is your fictional college, correct? In central Georgia. It is my fictional college. I think that, you know, people want to know what about this is, is your life. But I wanted to make sure that everything was fictional. Um, I attended Talladega College, which was in a very rural area, and it was co-educational. My mother and my two sisters attended Spelman College, and that was in an urban environment. So I wanted to just sort of create something that was in the Georgia countryside that was also considered to be one of these elite private schools. Talking about elite private schools, when I saw a reference to Mecca University, I thought, okay, that's Howard isn't it? Uh, I'm not going to say, but <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only one that's obvious. Oh. Um, I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland when I was a little girl and my father taught at Bowie State, but I don't know Washington, D.C. as a grown person. And so when I began to think about this great migration city, that Bale Driscoll Garfield moves to after her marriage to Jeffrey Garfield. And I thought, there's no way I can set this. I know Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta. I still had people in Atlanta. I learned how to drive in Atlanta. I know Atlanta backwards and forwards, but I don't know DC. So I created the city, which could be Philadelphia. It could be uh, Charlotte. It could be Durham, North Carolina. It could be D.C., but I kept it intentionally vague because I don't know the landscape. But I think it's pretty obvious that Mecca University is Howard University because it's, you know, Howard is called the Mecca. My father taught at Howard University in the early 60s alongside Toni Morrison. Oh, wow. And the great Sterling A. Brown was still alive then as well. The great poet Sterling A. Brown. So... I really wanted to make sure that all of this was fictional because, you know, when you mess up people's city or you mess up their university, they get really, really sensitive. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> the topic of sexual abuse recurs in this novel, mm -hmm. and it's impossible to read without feeling sickened, especially regarding the sexual abuse of children. The monstrous plantation owner, Samuel Pinchard, who is completely flawed. There is no good in that man. No, not at all. He holds his place among the worst villains in literature. Mm -hmm. Later in the book and in later decades, we read that a close relative of Ailey's, a well-educated man, third-generation doctor, is also a predator of children. Is the fact that this more recent character is somewhat descended from the evil plantation owner, does that suggest that this perversion is something you think hereditary? You know, I, I'm not really sure. I, I can't say that I was trying to make a statement about evil being hereditary. Because for me, again, human nature is always flawed. 
And, you know, all of us have to be constantly working on ourselves to not become horrible. I think it's difficult for people to sort of wrap their heads around it. And so therefore we have these sort of concepts of people being born evil. But as someone who studies history, I know that there are particular moments in history that encourage not just bad behavior, but evil behavior. One of the things when I was, when I was writing this very difficult uh, material about the intimate abuse of Black women and Black children, I did not start out thinking about writing this into the contemporary section. It was only when I began to do research for the historical sections of the book, the songs, that I came upon this very disturbing fact. The age of intimate consent for free white children in Georgia was 10 years old in the 18th and the 19th century, well into the 20th century. And so I began to think of two things. First, on a more basic level, if free white children were being married off at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, what would enslaved Black children be going through? They had no protection under the law. There were not any laws against sexual assault of Black women during that time. To intimately assault a Black woman was a crime against property in Georgia, okay? Not a crime against a person. So you would owe restitution to her master if it ever came to light, which I have not found. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I've not found any cases of that in Georgia. The other thing that I was thinking about, because this book very much is about how did we get to this place as a country, as a community, as a family? Those were the questions that were in my mind as I moved through the writing of this book, I began to look at this abuse of children as a metaphor for America in its infancy and what went wrong and what were the transgressions that occurred to bring this country to its present moment. And we can't escape that, you know? And I know that many people don't wanna think about it or talk about it because it's a, it's a stain on our national history. But unless it is reckoned with, which I think that Ailey as the contemporary protagonist in this novel attempts to reckon with it in her own way, right? On a smaller level through, you know, her study of the ancestors and her trying to reconcile, you know, what happened in her own family. You know, in writing that, I want to think about how do we reckon with this? Because it's not going to go away. You can pass laws that say you can't teach race in you know, public schools in the classroom. That is not going to make it go away. Attempting to bury it is only going to make it shout in the public sphere even more so. You write that this is a Black feminist novel. Proudly, you write that. Why is that important for readers to understand? Well, I want this book to be read by everybody. When you're a writer, I mean, this is probably part of the ego. You want everybody to read it. You want everybody to enjoy it, to think that, 
you know, in my case, my chubby baby, because this is a very big book, is, you know, beautiful. But this is a love song to Black women. This book is an offering to us, to all that has been erased about us, all that has been ignored about us, our strengths, our beauty, our striving for what is best for this community, taking a back seat to everyone because we are sacrificing for the greater good. I wanted people to understand now is our time. Now is the time where we celebrate ourselves. And that's why I say this is a Black feminist novel. Author and poet Honoré Fanon Jeffers. Her debut novel is The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. You can learn more about Jeffers and her latest work on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about the life of David Hockney, a novel. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Art, like religion, shouldn't exclude anyone. It should be universal. So writes Catherine Cousset in her new book, Life of David Hockney, a novel. The working-class art student from the north of England was successful from the very outset of his career. Hockney fell in love with the United States, settled in California, and is closely associated with sunny depictions of Los Angeles. Recently, one of Hockney's paintings sold for 90, that is 90, $0.3 million, a record auction price for a work by a living artist. Catherine Cousset imagines Hockney's feelings and thoughts at pivotal moments in his life. The author joins us now. Catherine Cousset, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. What made you want to tell the life of David Hockney in the form of a novel? Uh, first, I wrote this almost by chance. Uh, I was commissioned a personal essay on his work uh, because there was a large retrospective of his work in London and in Paris and in New York. I was supposed to write this in French, of course, because I'm a French novelist. Um, and I started reading about him uh, his biography, there is a very large biography, and also autobiographical books by him that he didn't write because David Hockney is not a writer, he's a painter, but he recorded them and then they were printed, published, one in 1975 and one in 1993. And these two books, mostly the first one, um, are full of anecdotes about his childhood and his youth. And I started reading them and I loved the person. I loved the person, I loved his voice, I heard him, and in my mind, even though I had never met him and I knew almost nothing about him, he became like a fiction character. And um, you've written 12 or 13 <laughs> novels, so the idea of um, 
his life being so ripe with character and plot, I guess, just jumped out at you from those scholarly biographies and uh, the personal. Well, he actually wrote an autobiography. He wasn't even 40. Yeah, I didn't write it. It was recorded and transcribed oh. because it doesn't write. But it's David Hockney by David Hockney. But yes, I wrote uh, 13 novels, which are published in French. I have, in, I have only one in English, The Story of Jane. And most of my novels are about very personal subjects. You know, I'm inspired by people close to me that I know very well and with whom I have an emotional connection. I wrote a novel about my mother, uh, that I love my mother, I adore her, but the book is called Family Hatred. <laughs> uh, I wrote a novel about my mother-in-law who emigrated from Romania in 1975. And more recently, I wrote a novel about a friend of mine, a very, very close friend of mine, French, who emigrated to the States when he was 23 and studied at Columbia. And this young man who was bright and very brilliant and funny and you know, full of life, so joyful, surrounded with friends, committed suicide at the age of 39. Mm. And I tried, I wrote the novel trying to understand what led him to such a desperate act and what was on his mind. So when I started writing, you know, when I wrote the book on David Hockney, people told me, oh, this is so different from what you did until now because you don't know David Hockney and it's your first book about an artist. How come? And I want to answer, no, it's really the same process in the, in the continuity. Yes, I do not know David Hockney, but in a way I have an emotional connection to him because through the books I read about him, I got the feeling I knew him. I loved him as an artist. I loved his freedom and I loved his sense of humor. The man is so funny. And I kind of identified with him. And I suppose that writing about his life allowed me to write about art, what it is to be an artist, and what it is to be a writer. What was it that you identified with so immediately? His freedom. You know, the man, I mean, he was born uh, in a poor family in an industrial town in England. And he became, as you just mentioned, a very, very uh, famous artist whose painting was just sold for $99 million. But he really uh, be he became a figurative artist when everybody was abstract. Uh, he also became a militant homosexual painter uh, in his 30s when homosexuality was still a crime in England. He moved to the States, you know, uh, he, discovered, he discovered New York in 1961 when he was uh, 24 years old, and that was a revelation to him. He loved the United States. He loved New York, and then he loved California, and he became the painter of California. But even though he's so well-known as this, you know, uh, painter of California. He's also always free to paint new things. He, he's one of the first artists who used technology. He used the fax machine. Yes, he used you the Xerox machine. He, he used the iPad and everybody around him was telling he's crazy. This is not art. But the man is always trying new things. I remember um, the first time I interviewed Annie Leibovitz maybe uh -huh. 12 years ago, 12. And um, I, I was very cautious about asking her her thoughts on digital <laughs> cameras because 
you know, the relationship between a photographer and and the dark room and developing the print and film uh-huh. was, is so sacred, intimate, yes, sacred, sacred indeed. <laughs> and she said she loved digital cameras and then she was using them already. Uh-huh. Um, David Hockney not being a technophobe and being so eager to embrace the iPhone well, first it was the Polaroid, and then later the iPhone, the fax. It it says so much about his spirit, and I think you bring that out in the book when you write about even in his maturity, he never had any uh, resistance to changing the medium. He went from acrylics to watercolor, Uh to charcoal. And I could see where in the form of a a novel and with this work unfolding as fiction, that as the novelist, you were completely um, coming to terms with his life in his actual life. Yes. So, you know, I'm very interested to understand what is going on through his mind. And in a way, you know, people ask me, but it's a biography because everything I write is accurate. I did a lot of research. I read everything. I cannot invent the life of a man who is alive. (laughs) So I wouldn't be correct, right? But what interests me is not to write about David Hockney, the famous painter. What I'm writing about is David the artist at the moment of creation, in the doubts of creation, because now we see his work, you know, retrospectively, he's very famous, he's ama- but he had big crises and moments of doubt. And I'm interested in understanding how this man, who became very famous in his 30s, painting double portraits and swimming pool, Californian swimming pool, which are iconic paintings, and with, who at the time earned money, you know, selling these paintings, suddenly he stopped. He stopped and he started using the Polaroid camera. He did this photo montage and everyone around here was saying he's wasting his talent. He's completely crazy. What happened to him? He's such a talented draftsman and colorist. Why is he using the camera? David Hockney doesn't care about what society expects from him. He only wants to do what he feels like doing. He's following some kind of instinct. And and this is why he's a great artist. You know, he's only following his own desire. And I believe he does so in part because he had a very happy childhood. A happy childhood and selling his first paintings at 18. This is not Van Gogh. <laughs> yes. And that's an amazing little anecdote, right? Because he was a student at the art school in Bradford at the time. And first he dares, there was an, a show in the city of Leeds, you know, a provincial town, of the work of his teachers. Because nobody could earn his life by painting. It didn't exist. So you had to be a commercial artist or an art teacher. So he asked, can I show my paintings too? Nobody did that. Already he dares. He thinks, well, what can happen? I can be re- refused, rejected. They say, okay. He shows two paintings. He doesn't put a price because he's only a student, right? He doesn't, he's not going to sell them. A man walks to him 
and says, oh, I want to buy this portrait. It was a portrait of his father. David Hockney cannot believe it. The man is offering 10 pounds, 10 pounds. This was a, a third of the fellowship he got for the year because he was a Beaux-Arts <laughs> student. But then he thinks, oh, I cannot sell it. I don't own the painting. Why? Because my father paid, paid for the canvas and I just made the marks of it. And the marks, that cost nothing. I just did this by pleasure. So he called his father and he asked if he can sell the painting. Father is very happy and says yes. And then David Hockney cannot believe it. And he calls his mother and he says, Mom, I just sold Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, a sentence like this, which I read his, his autobiography, immediately showed the, car- the person he is. His sense of humor is really funny. I don't know if you'd feel put on the spot. I, I marked a place that I think is wonderfully descriptive. descriptive. And uh, I wondered if you would read this. Of course. But Los Angeles lived up to his dreams. He had immediately fallen in love with that megalopolis that combined American energy and Mediterranean heat. Everything was a marvel. The eight-lane highways, the immensity of the space, the light, the ocean, the vast beaches, the brilliant colors of the vegetation under the sun, the white villas with flat roofs, the glass buildings, the geometric lines, the houses of the stars built in artificial styles, the blending of modernity and nature, and the ease of life there. No social classes, no labels, no traditions, complications, elitism. Everyone was equal and free. The bars were open until two in the morning, the perfect time if you wanted to work the next day. Mm. Pleasure without guilt, a blue sky, heat, and the ocean, and pools glimmering under the sun. So, of course, this is his vision, right? Because as we know, they, when, I, when I write, everyone is equal there. This is what he felt because he came from very elitist England. And also he was a homosexual, which he couldn't be openly in England, but he could be openly a gay man in, in L.A. Catherine, the book, in effect, feels like a tour through a gallery of Hockney's life. And I was hoping you would talk about your writing process. Did you first decide upon which paintings to include and then form the narrative? It's really like my like in my other books. I am trying to inhabit the mind of David Hockney. You know, I really need the emotional connection to him. I need the empathy. And I was able to write the book because I felt that empathy, even though I don't know him. I I really felt him. So I only tried to write what happens to him through time. You know, he's, this, he's born in that poor family, becomes this uh, very, very brilliant young student, you know, accepted in the best uh, uh, school of uh, painting in England. Then he moves to, to California. He becomes this very famous painter. But then he also has big crises. He's not sure he's a good painter. He's not Picasso. He realizes he's not Picasso. He has a, a, a painting he worked on for two years, Santa Monica Boulevard, and he throws it away and he's really criticized by great art critics. He's called superficial, by frivolous... By the English critics, mm, not so um, much the Americans. No, the American ones. Those, you know, Hilton Kramer was in New York. He, he wrote the worst article about David Hockney in 1978, saying it was like a bourgeois painter, you know, a conventional painter. And even though David Hockney, you know, 
pretended he didn't care. I think he cared. Because the question I was asking myself is, who decides you are a great artist? Who, decide, who decides you are a great novelist? Is your faith in yourself enough? You know, do you, or is it enough if people love to buy your work? If you sell like a 200,000 copies of a book, but the best literary critic says your work is not good, who is right? Well, and that's, what, that's a question I'm asking in my novel too. Who well, decides you are an artist? Author Catherine Cousset. More information about her book, Life of David Hockney, a novel, can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the playwright Anthony Lamar White and the artistic director of Essential Theatre, Peter Hardy, will be our guests. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.